This is the sermon podcast for Salem Presbyterian Church in Winston-Salem. Thanks for listening. To learn more about our church, visit salempresws.org. That's salempresws.org. We believe preaching is best when experienced as part of the larger drama of God's people gathering. Something spiritually unique happens when God's people are together. We meet each Sunday to let the liturgy shape us, to hear preaching, and to take the Lord's Supper. And these acts are more robust when done together. Join us Sunday evenings at 5 p.m. in downtown Winston-Salem at 600 Holly Avenue. Can you guys hear okay if I'm standing about this far away from the microphone? I want to be able to see your faces. Okay. Um, you might have noticed that we're working to distinguish between different types of psalms. If you've been here for the last couple of weeks, we've been going through a couple of, uh, of different psalm uh, readings. We did Psalm 12 and Psalm 32. And then last week, John Bourgeois was here, the campus minister at Wake Forest with RUF. And he preached through Psalm 132, which is a psalm of ascent. So we, we looked at a couple different psalms. Uh, psalms are, are poems, they're songs, they're prayers, they're pleas. And some of them are considered uh, what we call wisdom literature. Psalm 12, which we looked at a couple weeks ago, is an imprecatory psalm. It, it's, an, it's an angry curse psalm. And then Psalm 32 was a confession and a song of gratitude. And then last week's Psalm 132 is what we call a song of ascent. It was, it was the songs of worship uh, and pilgrimage. And this week, Psalm 73 is a wisdom psalm, which it might not sound like, it might just sound like a, a grumpy psalm, might be a way that you could categorize some of the, the reading of it. But there's a lot of wisdom baked into uh, this complaining that this the psalmist is putting out there. The reason that we're studying the psalms is to deepen our spirituality. And what I mean by that is we're trying to tie together our knowledge of God with the human experience of emotions in the presence of the Spirit. Okay, so let me say that again. We're trying to tie together like our knowledge, our thinking about God, our human experience of emotions, of feeling things, and bring those together in the Spirit. And the Psalms are a great place to try to learn how to do that. If we only listen to heady podcasts and read dense books, then we're going to suffer from an imbalanced spiritual diet, is kind of my thesis. At the same time, if we only lean on experience and feelings, we're going to suffer from an imbalanced spiritual diet in a different way. Most Christian traditions tend to not bring these things together. And in fact, will criticize the other either for their intellectualism or for their emotionalism. And for Presbyterians, which is what a lot of us are, that likely means uh, less dismissal. It, it probably means less 
uh, and less worry about our intellectualism and a lot of fear about people bringing their feelings into church. For many of us, our faith is like someone who has a deep knowledge of marriage principles because they've read Tim and Kathy Keller and they've read the Gottmans, but they have no emotional exchange with their spouse. The danger is that if our anger and our desires are left unexamined and that's our spirituality, if we're not bringing those, that anger, those desires open and unafraid before God, then they can move from anger into violence or from desire into lust. To quote James K. Smith, Jesus is a teacher who doesn't just inform our intellect, but forms our very loves. He isn't content to simply deposit new ideas into your mind. He is nothing less, he's after nothing less than your wants, your loves, and your longings. Plenty of Christians, and I could be accused of this too, walk around with a brain full of sermon podcasts, a knowledge of the Westminster Confession, and a totally disordered heart that's impatient with children or, or lusting towards strangers. So I want to start by naming the problem. What is the problem that Psalm 73 is, is calling out? Well, if you recall, I mentioned a few weeks ago that uh, the pastor Eugene Peterson calls the Psalms tools or technology for the interior life. Psalm 12 is a tool for releasing anger. And Psalm 32 is a confession. Psalm 73, what we're studying today, is a tool for diagnosing our misplaced gaze or our disordered hearts. We fix our eyes not on our good and present God, but on other humans who we envy or despise. And we all do this. But instead of repressing it or ignoring it like many Christians do, Psalm 73 gives us language to deal with it. The psalmist begins by confessing he's been wandering around with his eyes fixed on something other than God. He knows God is good and he acknowledges that right away in verse 1. In verse 1. But then he says he's lost his footing. Now you might if you've been around the church you might have heard a phrase like foothold or I've lost my foothold or my foot was caught in a snare and these might be things that are sort of vapid or cliche at this point for you but I want to I want to pause and not gloss over that metaphor verse 3 says that the psalmist saw so there is this language of of looking that there's a gaze that's going on and verse 2 in the Hebrew says that the psalmist stumbled and spilled the Hebrew roots here are saying that the psalmist was bent over and and spilled out it conjures this image of someone who is on a hike and has rolled their ankle and bloodied their palms because their eyes were focused on something other than the path. Psalm 31 has the psalmist pleading with God to not let him get fixated on things too lofty for him to worry about. That's Psalm 131. That's your favorite psalm, Michael, right? Shout out to you, buddy. Psalm 73 has a similar thing. But the psalmist isn't saying, don't, isn't praying, don't let my eyes go up there. The psalmist is saying, it's already happened. I've moved my gaze off of you and I don't know what to do. The psalmist is ensnared in things he should not worry about. 
The New Living Translation puts it this way, but as for me, my feet almost slipped. My steps nearly went astray. Or Eugene Peterson paraphrases it this way, God is good, but I nearly missed it. Missed seeing his goodness. I was looking the other way. I was looking up at the people at the top. And this reminds me of one of my sons. One of my sons is very willing to run full force without looking ahead. You should try doing it as an adult because you probably don't realize how conditioned you are as an adult to not run without looking. But I have tried it. I've tried imitating him and it it is actually, it is absolutely terrifying to just run straight and look to the side. And this psalm is saying that we are like children untrained in that gut notion that you should look where you're going in fixing your eyes. I, I am, I'm totally serious that I want you to try this sometime this week in the privacy of, of a downtown alley or perhaps your, your backyard. But I, I really want you to do this because I think this psalm will come to life for you. If you run while having your gaze fixed in the wrong direction, you'll realize that you are the spiritual equivalent of this. That's what Psalm 73 is saying. You are someone untrained in fixing your eyes on where you're going so you don't stumble. We need spirituality. We need spiritually what we've learned about ourselves physically. Our our spiritual survival needs to have this same training that our physical survival has. Lest we have the spiritual equivalent of running down the hallway at 904 West Academy Street and hit the door frame, which then leads to screaming and crying, hypothetically speaking. The problem is that our eyes are not fixed on the path to beauty and contentment in the spirit, but instead we're running towards the Lord, but we're looking at things that are going to lead us into bloody palms and rolled ankles. So that, that's the problem. And now I want to talk about what, what is it that we're fixating on? What's the, what is it that, that people are looking at that Psalm 73 is talking about? The question that Psalm 73 poses is, why do the wicked prosper? And I'm inclined to think that this psalm is being subjective when it categorizes people as godly and wicked. And what I mean by that is that while the psalmist sees himself as godly, and those who he despises as wicked, don't we all kind of do that with everyone around us, put people into these categories of I'm, I'm pretty decent and they're pretty bad. What, it, what it's expressing is this very human sensibility. Why do these people seem to have a charmed life despite themselves while I, a decent person, struggle? Verse 5 describes these people as not having a hard time, carefree, unafflicted. And then verses 6 through 12 are a litany of accusations, the sum of which claims that these people's prosperity is to the harm of others. It'd be easy to picture the wicked being uh, conniving charlatans, someone like uh, Elizabeth Holmes from Theranos, if you know that story, or Bernie Madoff the Ponzi scheme guy. 
But this psalm is not so much advocating for this clear black and white, the good and the wicked, which one are we, so much as I think it's expressing this universal human sentiment. Most humans think, I'm ostensibly good, and then the people who frustrate us, well, they must be bad. If you want a great example of this, Kenneth Lay, who was the CEO of Enron in 2001, said sincerely to PBS, we are the good guys. We're on the side of angels here. I don't think that the psalmist is actually distinguishing between good and evil so much as embodying categories that we all create in our head of the, the mostly decent us and the infuriatingly wrong them. And that makes us bitter. It makes all of us bitter when we're operating in these categories. If you dislike the Enneagram, I, I understand that. And you're going to dislike the next paragraph. It's not the gospel. Uh, if you don't know what the Enneagram is, it's, it's a personality typing tool. And I think it would be unwise to bring up regularly in preaching, but I actually thought in this sermon it might be helpful to bring some nuance to how different people experience that same bitterness. For instance, we all react a little differently to discontent the way that the Psalm 73 is talking about it because of our, our personalities. To be frustrated with those who seem to have a breezy life is probably a universal experience, but how that manifests itself is probably different from person to person. So for me in the Enneagram, I, I'm an individualist, which is a four. So I tend to envy those people and I wish I could be like them. If you're a, a five or an investigator, you might hoard your time and avoid responsibility to put distance between you and the people you perceive as having it carefree. If you're a loyalist six, you might become fearful that those prospering are threatening you and thus you exaggerate their flaws. If you're an enthusiast seven, you might not have many relationships where you think wicked and good, except for authorities who try to limit your freedom to do whatever you want. If you're a challenger eight, first of all, you probably don't believe in the Enneagram, but second of all, you can be aggressive and, and try to, to tear down those who prosper through a posture of self-righteousness. Peacemaking nines, you might see others as prospering and you react with with repressed anger and procrastination. Ones or, or reformers, you can become quietly indignant and, and judgmental of the prosperous. Helpers who, who are also twos might tend to inflate how helpful you are in your own mind and resent the prosperous for not giving you enough credit or support in your ventures. And achieving threes can try to imitate the prosperous and curate an image of prosperity in your own life. What all of these things have in common is that these are vices that lead to bitter hearts. Whether it manifests itself as envy or hoarding or gluttony or self-righteousness, the difference is just how we express our fixation on other people. What's universal is that fixing our eyes on others, ranking other humans as wicked and ourselves as good, leads to a bitter heart. This psalm's meant to be comforting with a dose of corrective wisdom. 
We all struggle with bitterness as humans. Just like repressed anger, which is something I talked about two weeks ago, I want to also make a case that repressed bitterness is not a Christian attribute. Psalm 12 described people with unexamined anger as like animals. And Psalm 73 describes those with unexamined bitterness bitterness as being like animals. Whether it's repressed anger or repressed bitterness, we devolve away from wisdom and toward unhealthy brooding when we don't express how mad it makes us when people we perceive as uncompassionate or selfish living a carefree life. And this psalm gives permission to us to purge all that bitterness, to name the other as an enemy, as wicked, even allowing us to create these categories of the good us and the bad them. Verses 15 through 17 essentially say, did I not do everything good and these selfish people get all the rewards? That happens right before it pivots to look at the interior life. The psalmist, before looking and examining himself, purges all that bitterness with these prayers of us and them and cynical suspicion at the lives of others. The psalmist purges all the bitterness first, but not through gossip to other people. Instead, the psalmist goes to, le- goes to lengths to define all the wrongs that he sees with these other people not by venting them to other humans, but by speaking them to God. And he seems to even justify a sense of entitlement and envy in the way he's doing it before God. If you're like me, you have an internal voice that tells you you have to muster up some good behavior and don't actually think those bitter things to God. But my self-control only goes so far. So I need to purge those bitter feelings before they come out on their own. So we've already talked about naming what's going on here, the not fixing our eyes in the right place, and then what is it that's being fixated on? And now I just want to talk about how the psalmist pits, pivots from envy and towards healing, away from bitterness and towards flourishing. God is not calling you or me, any of us, to be anything more than the broken, feeling human that you are. And Psalm 73 is showing for us how to pray out our bitterness and our discontent to that end. That's the first step, to pray those things out so that we can get to a prayer like verses 21 and 22, where the psalmist prays, when you arise, O Lord, you will laugh at their silly ideas as a person laughs at dreams in the morning. But then immediately the psalmist pivots and seems to stand before a mirror, interrupting his rant against the objects of his jealousy. And he says, then I realized that my heart was bitter and I was all torn up inside. I was so foolish and arrogant. I must have seemed like a senseless animal to you. Psalm 73 is telling us first, pray the bitter things. Pray them out, that vitriol and all. Instead of going and venting to somebody about it, take it to God. 
And in that process, you'll see your own heart. It's tempting to want to just try to dive right into our own heart, but we might not deal with that bitterness if we do. Over the life of your faith, you have surely developed a voice that tells you, what would Jesus do? And that is a beautiful and biblical desire, but I will tell you it is a terrible goal. You can desire to be transformed, to be like Jesus, but you cannot will yourself to exist as he exists. And that's what we're doing when we're trying to pretend that we don't have bitterness or anger that we need to pray out. It's not accomplishable for you to try to will yourself to be like Jesus. Jesus did not envy. He was not bitter. And you just are. You just have to name the fact that you as a human have bitterness and anger. And if your solution to that is to try to act like Jesus, you will fail and you will probably devolve into something animalistic that harms those around you that you love and those you don't love. Psalm 73 is saying, don't give up. Just because you can't will yourself, don't give up. Instead, allow your humanity to be flushed like an infection before God. What Christ is calling you to is not perfection, but healing. And praying out your anger, your jealousy, your desire to put a facade of perfection on is a healthy biblical purgation. In fact, it almost seems like preparation to come to this table. We talk a lot here every Sunday when we introduce this table about how we don't want you to make the bar too high. You don't have to have super faith. The only thing that he requires is to feel your need of him, one of the hymns says, and we quote that often. But there is one other thing that is required to come to this table. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says that we should examine our hearts and not take this meal if we are holding something against someone. And are not all of us doing that to some extent? It might mean talking to that person and reconciling, but it might just mean that when you're coming up here tonight, it means maybe you can just pray out your judgments, all of them, ugly words, curses and all, to the Father. Because that is essentially why Jesus died. We cannot approach God with all of that mess But the whole point of the cross was that we were not going to solve that by trying to better ourselves and then make it possible for us to go before the Father. Instead, it was was that the Father acknowledged that we will not make that possible. And so instead, the Son will go before us and make the sacrifice necessary for us, our bitterness, our cursing, our hatred of other people, our envy, to be able to come to Him and pray a prayer like Psalm 73. The Christian life is not to will yourself against any speech that is judgmental or uh, envious of other people. Instead, it is to take take stock of ourselves, acknowledge that that is within us, purge it out before the Father, and then accept the healing that comes at this table. In the process of praying out those prayers of our envy, our hoarding of time, our exaggeration of others' flaws, our resentment, toward giving our freedoms up, our self-righteousness, our repressed anger, 
our judgmentalism, our entitlement to credit, and our facade building can all be expelled like clean water flushing out a wound. Or like an exhaust hood in a kitchen where the smoke in our hearts can be drawn out and removed. Psalm 73 is saying that we should pray out those things that we're feeling and in the process it will reveal our bitterness and free us to come to the cross, to come to this table and pray with Psalm 73. But as for me, how good it is to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my shelter and I will tell everyone about the wonderful things you do. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he was with his friends and he took bread and he broke it. And in that moment, he knew that Peter was going to fall asleep and deny him. He was going to also disobey him and cut off a guy's ear, which we don't really know how you do that, but he did. He knew that Judas was going to, had already betrayed him. He knew all that when he broke bread and gave thanks to him. And he said, this is my body which is broken for you. In the same way, he took a cup and he said, this is my blood. I'm going to shed this blood for you. He said, whenever you gather together, eat this bread and drink this cup in remembrance of me. And what he was calling us to remember is that he's not asking us to be perfect to approach the Father. He's asking us to remember that it is possible for us to take all of our junk to the Father because of what he has done through this table. And if you're wondering whether or not this table is for you, then the answers come pretty simply just from examining your own self. If you want that, if you want that approach to the Father, if you want to be able to come before him and share how you're feeling, and you think that Jesus is the one that makes that possible for you, then this table is for you. It has nothing to do with any perfection or brokenness or performance on your part. And at the same time, if that, if that doesn't resonate with you, then we're really glad you're here. And we actually uh, want to be a church where there are people who are taking communion and not taking communion. This is not an exercise in conformity. This is a, this is a, a place where weak people are coming to get the medicine that they think they want. And if that doesn't resonate with you, then, then we don't want you to have to feel like you have to go against your conscience. So please don't feel any pressure to come up here. Um, let me give some instructions and then I'll pray. The way that we're going to do this is we'll have folks uh, come from the sides. And I, I keep forgetting. Is it? Where's, who set this up? Wine's, wine is close to the building. There we go. Wine is close to the building. Grape juice is closer to the street. Okay. So you'll come up. We'll give you some hand sanitizer. We'll give you a piece of bread. And we'll give you a cup. Don't eat it. You'll take it back to your seat, and then we'll take everything together. Um, let me pray for us. And um, oh, and one other thing I will mention is that uh, we are now as a church uh, not asking folks as a, as, a, as a practice of trying to love our neighbor. We were, we were asking everyone to wear masks for this whole past year, and we're, we're no longer asking folks to do that. So you don't have to wear a mask if that is, feels like a wise decision for you. Try to give yourself some space while you're in line, but that might be tricky, so wear a mask.